So if I really want to scare myself this Halloween, what do I need to read or watch or play? What are your top recommendations? Every academic paper on a climate emergency that we're enduring right now, because if that doesn't <laughs> scare you, I don't know what will. But uh, more seriously, I keep thinking a lot about this Indonesian horror film, Impetigor. It is deeply, deeply unsettling. Um, great, great gore, great ideas. Um, so we recommend that as a thing to watch. Impetigor. Yes. Oh, okay. And for something to read, um, so Stephen Graham Jones is at this point a household name. Everyone knows about owning good Indians, which has a very, very distressing scene with a bike. But the one I want to recommend, however, is a one of his earlier books, The Lease of My Scars. And without giving anything away, um, it is the only book I've read where after I was done, I had to gently put it down go to my shower, turn the heat on to the maximum volume and just scrub on my skin for half an hour because the grime in it, the madness, the horror of it just sunk into me. And I was like, Ugh. oh, that sounds terrifying. And you have to understand um, a lot of what I do just as research is just going through autopsy photos, forensic records. So I am someone who is not unnerved by actual body horror. Um, I have studied the insides of somebody who got hit by a shotgun blast while eating lunch. So the fact that <laughs> oh, like, oh, that's a lot oh about my it. God. Wow. I I never really, felt, I, huh? I've never really thought about the research that you must do. I mean, you've gone through autopsy pictures. Uh, is there anything else that uh, kind of crazy to other people that you've that you've done? Um, I study a lot of what happens in accidents and natural disasters. Um, I don't do a lot of it because it feels disrespectful to the victim and the situations itself. But when situation calls for it, I absolutely look up the impact of like velocity and momentum, kind of how, what happens to the body and like why sometimes we burst like balloons and do not, things like that. I also do it a lot oh. while I'm in cafes and I can always tell when somebody's looking over my shoulder because every now and then, <laughs> every few months, I hear this tiny string of, ah, and I go away and I'm like, oh, someone's trying to see what I was doing. <laughs> the cops are going to find me one day and I will have to explain to them this is because I write horror, but it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> This is One to One, an interview series where I find fascinating people from around the world of games to have a proper chat with. I'm Bertie, a long-time journalist for Eurogamer, and joining me today is someone who's also written for Eurogamer on a few occasions, before going on to do much more impressive things, um, like writing games, writing novellas, and even writing Dungeons and Dragons source books, uh, which isn't as impressive as writing novellas, but it's still impressive all the same. Um, their credits include games like Falcon Age and Sunless Skies and Fallen London and, and others as well, and more recently, Gotham Knights. Uh, their novellas include Hammers on Bone, which, as far as I understand, kick-started uh, their writing career, really. Uh, and then more recently, uh, Nothing But Blackened Teeth, a book which I'm holding up 
to the camera now, which became a USA Today bestseller last autumn around sort of Halloween time when it was released. And they have a short story collection called Breakable Things coming out in November too. So in a couple of weeks from where we are now, they are, drumroll, Cassandra Core. Cassandra, hello. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Um, not as busy as you by the sounds of things. So I like asking people this because it, it shows a snapshot into their daily life, I suppose. But what have I interrupted you doing this morning? Because you're in New York, so it's roughly 10 a.m. Um, for you. So what, what were you doing or what would you be doing if you weren't um, speaking to me? Good question. I've never heard that one. Um, <laughs> I would just be wrapping up a weightlifting session at my usual gym. Okay. Do you go every time, every day at the same time? Pretty much every day at the same time. I try to go in the mornings. Um, I do it about four days a week and like two days of cardio. I definitely like one more than the other. Okay. Um, is it the weightlifting you prefer? To oh, God, cardio? it is absolutely the weightlifting. The cardio stuff just makes me go, <gasps> I am an absolute mess and I look terrible at the end of it. I don't know anyone who looks Do you have... Do you have a favorite weightlifting exercise? Uh, definitely the deadlifts. Ah, okay. Partially because functionally speaking, like they're incredibly effective for the body to build up strength really quickly, uh, span the shoulders, um, strength in the back, the lower back, legs, glutes, and stuff like that. And also you feel pretty damn cool doing them. It's good as well because you can, weight, deadlifting is something you can, pile the weight on i mean you know obviously you need to get your form down first but it's one of those mm -hmm. ones that can look really impressive you know you can get the get the belt on if you know if you need it and get the weight up and do a nice a nice lift how serious is is, is weightlifting as a as a thing for you um incredibly serious honestly um i started in college and i kind of drifted off going back into dance and then going into muay thai but i sprained my knee about four years ago and I spent a year trying to teach myself how to walk properly. Again, I had a weird limp for a while. Uh, and weightlifting became a bit of a lifeline. It's a lot e harder to gauge your progress with most other exercises because you can't really tell for sure if you're doing better at a run or not. But with weightlifting, you can tell empirically if you've improved from session to session because you can move the weights up, you can count your reps and stuff. So, yeah really serious it's it's a thing that i use to measure my day and to improve my week so to speak amazing okay so i imagine weightlifting i was very into weightlifting um at one point as well not so much now i've kind of traded yoga for weightlifting but for me it was a much needed release after being in a chair all day long i like to kind of use my body after using my head a lot sort of getting up in my mm -hmm. head it was something for me about really getting in my body and, and uh, doing that is it a similar thing for you or um yeah just a lot of the cortisol goes out as you're just focusing on the moment and i think like you said it's a good way of just getting out of your own head almost um because with weightlifting, especially if you're trying to do it in a higher weight, so you're paying attention to your form, you're paying attention to what you're doing. And that laser focus moves the day stress, the little things that you're worried about that you maybe should not be worried about, but are aside. And when you 
surface from a weightlifting session like an hour or two later, you kind of forget the stuff that doesn't matter. So yeah, very similar for me. Yeah. Have you written any stories based around weightlifting? So when I was researching before this, I thought I thought I was doing quite well having read nothing but blackened teeth. And then I went onto your website and I was looking at how many stories you've written and I was like, holy shit, <laughs> there are like a hundred, more than a hundred probably. So I, I'm sorry, but I haven't read all of your stories, but are there any in there about weightlifting? Oh, not yet, actually. The stuff that matters most to me in terms of day-to-day -day life doesn't actually get into my stories much. I don't know okay. why. Like people keep asking me when I'm going to write about my cats and say, I'm just not going to write about my cats. And I don't know. So I was surprised when I was researching and finding about how much um, work you do, uh, frankly. I, I was reading that apparently you have another book coming out and I think in May next year called The Salt Grows Heavy. Is that right? That is correct. Um, it is my little novella about a carnivorous mermaid and a weird plague doctor finding their way into a spooky forest. Like that is a terrible sales pitch, but I'm still working on it. And then after that, later that year, um, I have a book that I co-wrote with Richard Cadry of Sandman Slim. I think that's all that's coming out next year. God, I hope so. I think so. <laughs> Fantastic. So let me start with the recent things and, and we'll touch on those other things in a second. So the most recent thing, in fact, the game that comes out this week is Gotham Knights. Mm -hmm. uh, what were you doing for that game? Oh, narrative. I'm afraid I can't say more than that. Oh, OK. OK. And so because the last I checked, really, or the last I knew, you were working um, with Ubisoft at the me their mega studio in Montreal. Mm -hmm as a lead script writer, is that right? No, no, a lead script writer. Um, oh. I was lead writer in NetEase Montreal, actually. Ah, okay. And what, can you say what you were working on uh, at Ubisoft? Uh, I worked on Hyperscape. I worked on stuff that is still under NDA. And I worked very briefly on Rainbow's Six Siege. Okay. And how are you feeling about Gotham Knights? Because I, I wonder what your mindset is. I mean, I, I assume your work on the game was done um, a while ago, potentially, and that, but it's coming out this week and, you know, people are talking about it now. Does that make you feel nervous? Uh, is it in your, is it a past memory for you? How do you feel about that? I think my feeling about all my contract work is generally the same. I am immeasurably proud to be involved in these projects and I generally hope that my sections are good. Yeah. Sorry, at this point, it's this is the sound that you're going to get. That's fine. So, what happens next for you in terms of, of game work? Do you do you carry on doing uh, contracted game work? Because you know, looking at the amount of books you've got or book projects you've got coming up, um, you know, two two books next year, one that's just coming out in in November. It feels like there's quite a lot going on there. I was actually surprised to see that you were still doing uh, game writing work. Are you kind of transitioning away from it or? Oh, no, actually, I am on two, two full-time contracts for two companies I'm not allowed to discuss just yet. Um, I am what I like to call a pathological workaholic. 
everyone okay. else, like, oh, that is a really, really self-deprecating way of saying um, you're a hard worker. But now uh, my anxiety is such as that, like, if I do not feel every, if I do not fill every waking hour or something productive, I get ridiculously anxious. Ah, so, okay. Yeah. So in Bookland, Breakable Things, um, now this comes out 8th of November, I think, yes. at least here in, in the UK it does. Um, and it's a collection of stories. Can you give us a, an idea of what they're about? What kind of collection is this? Um, so it's my debut collection. It's something I wanted to do for a while, but wasn't really sure about if I had enough stories to build a collection. <laughs> um, obviously, I got sidetracked doing everything else. And I came back to the idea and I told my agent, he was like, yeah, you, you have more than enough stories at this point. <laughs> so a really, really um, good friend and a mentor figure, Angela Slater, I approached her about it because she's released like so many absolutely wonderful books and collections um and i was like how do you do one and she went oh let me show you and she talked to me about the process of it how she would put together a table and content showed me a list of what she would think would work um and i kind of toddled off with that very hopefully to a variety of publishers including undertale publications and michael kelly there was like i would love to publish your collection but this is how i would structure the toc and the result from it is just a mix of stuff just exploring grief and body horror revenge and monstrosity most of it centers around the idea of people pushing back against the world you have werewolves going for revenge you have mermaids who were fished out of the ocean imprisoned mm -hmm. impregnated and then Made to wait until they could have their moment, so to speak. Interspaced with quieter explorations of grief, um, aging couples, exploring end of life options, a girl who is haunted by the ghost of her dead father, things like that. Most of my stuff tends to be oddly melancholy for how oddly jovial I am in person. At least that's what people tell me. Well, maybe it's maybe it's a release, but um, we'll come on to that in a second. So when you're approaching a collection of short stories, do you have to think of, number one, have you already got the, que um, the questions? Have you already got the stories written or are they completely new? Number two, is there a theme that you create the stories around? How, I mean, and, and, and how do you order them? How, how do you go about collecting stories like that? Honestly, um, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I've been lucky enough to have people way smarter than me assist me with this. My editor, uh, Michael Gelly and Undertow Publications, um, just did a bang-up job of just figuring out what works in terms of prose, in terms of length, in terms of just ideas. Um, a friend of mine did describe the process of creating a short story collection, I think, it's a really good analogy. Um, she called it a tasting menu for the mind. And the way okay. it is built up is very similar. Like you want certain flavors, you want certain emotions, impressions to linger as you move to the next story. And then you have little things that just kind of are like palate cleanses before you switch momentum. And uh, 
concept. It's kind of like that. So, At least as far as I understand. Again, the short story Kelly show was put together by people way smarter than I am. So, I'm just the one who's fascinated with odd amounts of gore. We'll come on to that fascination and, and, and where that kind of began maybe and how how that developed. But is there anything in this short story collection that feels kind of new for you or in the sense that are you nervous about people reading this or are you kind of used to the idea now that you know people buy and read your books and um and comment on them and that kind of thing are you used to sharing your inner things i don't know what they are feelings ideas all of those things um a little column a most mostly column b i am at this point incredibly used to um having my insights analyzed so to speak <laughs> commented upon just like something. you've analyzed other people's insights by the yes. of things. I, I do understand why some of my early reviews resulted in angry commentary from the developers and i feel bad about it now <laughs> <laughs> um but i'm used to it although there is one story um it's in fact the one that the collection takes its name from that i always feel nervous about sharing when one of my publishers, Nightfire, turned it into a little audio thing, I absolutely could not read any of the reviews associated with it. I couldn't even bear listening to it, and it's some breakable things. So, a little bit of a background. Um, a fair number of years ago, my mother reached out to me through Facebook, and she was like, hey, and I'm like, what's up? And she's like, is your partner with you? And when the mother asked that, it's never good. I'm like, um, no, but can you tell me what's going on? And she was like, your father passed away. You know, oh, I never heard of that. And I remember being absolutely devastated by that and doing the media thing of like, um, I had a con I had to go to and I was like, I'm going to cancel plans. I'm taking a flight straight home. And she would, she told me, oh, don't bother. We're scattering his ashes today. Which wow. uh, later turned out to be a lot more dramatic and complicated, but that's a story for another time. <laughs> um, some breakable things. I remember finishing that conversation with my mother, opening up a blank page, and I just started writing. I think I finished that story within an hour wow. of getting the news, and it is a lot of me dealing with the fact that my father had basically abandoned my family and yet for the longest time I was still haunted by him haunted by the things he did and did not do and by the knowledge because I never got the normal ritualized device I would always be haunted by that knowledge oh hmm. uh, and that is probably the rawest story I've ever written in my life so every time it goes back out in the public and you people discover it I just it still makes me nervous. Do you ever wonder whether you should share something like that? Um, occasionally I do, but at the end of the day, regardless of whether you believe in an afterlife or not, we only have a finite amount of time as individuals that we are, because if you look at the various religions, reincarnation puts you in different body, um, Christianity and a lot of other Abrahamic religions, says you either go off to heaven and start singing happily forever or get, you know, <laughs> roasted. 
for all of eternity. However you interpret the world and what comes after, this you, it doesn't last. And as much as I feel nervous about certain things, as much as I wonder about my decisions, what frightens me most is being on my deathbed one day and knowing I didn't go for the things I wanted. I didn't let myself try things because I was afraid. And that's horrifying. Just knowing that there was time to experiencing, to experiment and giving it up. The way I see it is even if it doesn't work out, at the end of the day, it's a story, whether it's a cautionary tale for somebody else or something fun you tell friends over a pint. It's still worthwhile trying things within limits, of course. There are absolutely things you should not do. Like murder. Murder is not good for anybody. So I've just recently started a creative writing course. And one of the things that I'm having maybe trouble wrapping my head around is that I can write anything. As in, I can create anything can happen in my stories there's no rule set and um, in my head i'm like oh it has to be uh believable in you know a w the world and i'm thinking of my world and then i'm like but i can make a world where it isn't believable or i can make a different world or i can make it completely unbelievable in this world I i'm having trouble with the concept that i can do anything i like in a story and you know obviously this is something you came to terms with a long time ago because as you mentioned you've got mermaids and werewolves and all these things in your stories and and you know you a, a freaky ghost in uh, nothing but black and teeth who um, is not very pleasant to be around it turns out um how i guess i'm asking about where your ideas come from um and how you kind of unlock them and then i suppose where do you pull for ideas and, and, and how do you live with them as well? Maybe that's two questions in one, but they're not always the nicest things to live with. As you say, you're quite a chirpy person, but I'm going to stop asking loads of questions and let you answer. There we go. Wait, which, which question am I answering? So <laughs> let's, let's start with ideas and, and, and following them and, and with this idea that you can, you know, you can create anything. How, how do you find your ideas? And then when you have an idea, how do you develop it? Well, how do you push it further? Well, do you, yeah. Um, everywhere, honestly. Um, up to the, before I ended up in Ubisoft Montreal, I was essentially nomadic for about 10 years. So different continent every three months. And I still like telling people I have a lot more stamina than sense. So I spent a <laughs> lot of time walking. Uh, my cousin constantly tells me it is not normal to see an hour's walk as a brief walk. Okay, yeah. Uh, everyone else agrees, insists on that too, but yeah. yeah. Um, so when you're used to just exploring and wandering, you run into old buildings, weird conversations, Odd little sights, like somebody who is perhaps excessively tall, just standing there staring at a wall for no reason as a whole bunch of people just swirl past him. And these little images kind of lodge themselves into your mind and your subconscious starts asking questions. And I feel like when you do the storytelling thing for a while, you sort of train your brain to ask the correct questions of itself. And that slowly builds into something else. And I'm also, uh, I'm really into old lore, mythology from different places, stories about cultures, 
stories about people, small lives, big lives, things like that. And I just kind of magpie from everything. And I think that's where most of it comes from. As for exploring um, the ideas and knowing how to expand them, I will say a lot of it happens subconsciously at this point, but there is a book that I absolutely love. Also, I think I'm going to sneeze in a second. No, that's going to be a little sniffle. I apologize for that. Um, it's Travel Logs by Kathleen Jennings. And it is a collection of tweets that she wrote, if I'm not mistaken, while taking trains from one location to another. Now, Kathleen Jennings is an absolutely spectacular artist, an amazing writer, but she also used to be a photographer. And she would take little snapshots of things that fascinated her, that she thought was cool, that she thought was beautiful. And one day, I think according to her notes, I could be wrong, she kind of decided, what if I captured all of these moments in text? Hmm. So she de-skilled herself as a photographer and committed to the idea of writing one, two lines of absolute poetry to capture an odd little thing she saw, a beautiful thing that she saw. And I think, uh, long story short, if you want to pursue the ideas and build them into something else, you have to commit to the idea of just growing them, of pushing yourself away from your comfort zone. It is easy to say, oh, there are too many things, or I don't know where I'm going. It's a lot harder to go, well, we're going to try this direction until we are convinced it's not going to work and just follow mm. that until it becomes habit, until it becomes rhythm. And if it doesn't work, just expand on that, borrow techniques from different books and different writers and creatives and just build and build and build until you have your own system and it becomes second nature. Kind of similar you, to, you, sorry. Do you have a system? Would you say you had a system? Um. Sort of. Again, it is mostly subconscious at this point. But I find myself constantly asking questions of things that fascinate me and building worlds around it. Um, to use that early example, when I saw that one dude, I think he was like seven, close to seven feet. <laughs> skinny as all hell. He was mostly just bone and sinew and he was just staring into a wall. I don't know why he was staring into a wall. No one else seemed to care about the fact he was staring at the wall. He was perfectly well-dressed, but he was absolutely just gazing into a blank gray wall. And I remember thinking to myself, like, why would somebody do that? Is he waiting for something? If he's waiting for something, what would he wait for? Why would people not pay attention to him as he waited for someone? Would someone else be like him? Are there versions of him across cities, across the same city? And just lacing all of it together into a tapestry of possibilities. So I guess my method is to just constantly interrogate why I find something curious and pursue it to its natural end. Fascinating. And the way you talk about it is, is fascinating as well, which I suppose isn't surprising given that you're a storyteller. Anyway, um, so it's this point where I quite like to go back in people's lives just to see kind of where they started or where these ideas began and how they kind of ended up where they did because um, i think there's a nice through line there uh, sometimes so let's go back to to little cassandra in 
I think you grew up in Malaysia. Malaysia. Okay, huh? uh, in Malaysia. So, what? Where were you then? And and what did you want to be? More more importantly, when you grew up, what was your vision of the world, as it were? I wanted to be a forensic specialist. Aha. I had a fascination in corpses.、Uh, when I turned eighteen and informed my mother of such, she told me no child of mine will play with corpses. <laughs> and I think I blame it on my parents because, for some obscure reason, they were very insistent on making like seven, eight-year-old me watch things like Alien, John Carpenter's The Thing. So I had a very unfortunately early exposure to the insides of the human body and the things that could happen to it. Right. So I was going to ask, where does this love of horror come from? Where where does it begin? And and maybe it begins in those films. I think partially those films because I think the mind, when confronted with something that scares it, either leans into it or recoils from it.、Um, okay. But but it's also the fact that I grew up in Malaysia, and you cannot grow up in Malaysia without. Hearing ghost stories without knowing they're haunted places. There's this, there's that, the other.、Um, it is a deeply multicultural country, and every ethnicity has their own mythology, their own legends. And as kids, you just kind of wander around, listening to your friends, hearing what they have to say about everything. It's everywhere in that.、Um, so every year, the Hungry Ghost Festival comes around. It's all of August, and the Chinese believe. That for one month the doors of hell open and the ghosts are allowed to just pour back into the world. Wow! And one of the things that is done every year is enormous stages erected in different neighborhoods, and you see people singing, doing performances, all kinds of stuff. There's always a row of chairs at the very front that is kept completely empty, and these are for the ghosts. And depending、ah. on the neighborhood, depending on the performers. These shows will go on till about four or five in the morning, and you just have this full troop of entertainers speaking to empty chairs like there are people there. Wow! And it's weird, and it is wild, and it is just beautifully intense. And when you grow up in a place like that, ghosts will always have room in your heart. Do you remember any? Particular ghost stories from childhood.、Uh, I remember hearing some. I mean, just but around the campfire. Are there any that have stayed with you since childhood?、Uh, do you want a funny answer or a scary answer? Scary. It's nearly、okay. Halloween. Let's go for scary. So this isn't so much a thing that I heard as much as it is a thing that I saw. There、okay. is a belief. That the Pontiana kind of vampire is more or less take residence in banana trees during the day, and some people believe you can force them to tell you the future, give you like winning lottery numbers if you find the correct banana tree, wrap a red thread around it, and stab it with a needle. Come nightfall, the spirit wakes up and begins wailing for release, and it will do anything, say anything. To get the needle pulled out, and once I really re- I remember this so vividly. I was wandering through a rich neighborhood, just kind of tolling around. I think I was fifteen or sixteen, and there was this cluster of banana trees hidden behind 
you know, the wall, well, the gates of an enormous bungalow. Every single one of them had strings tied around them and the needle thrust through their heart. And I'm like, I'm going to get, nope, I have no idea this was real or not, but I'm going the other direction just in case, because that is a very disconcerting thing to find. Wow. I guess images like that, uh, as, as you're um, proving, stay with you for a long time. But they do. They absolutely do. So horror, a love of horror comes from 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 where you grew up and I, I guess your parents' fondness for um some quite gory sort of body yes. horror kind of kind of films. So how about video games or, or games in general? Where do games come into your life and and were they a big part of it? Um, yes. As for as long as I remembered I've had access to video games. I've always been obsessed with them. Um, played them all my life, big love for JRPGs, for RPGs, strategy games, loved the old Warcraft games, played every Sierra and Lucascraft game I could get my hands on. Ironically, now that I work in video games, I barely play video games because once I'm done working on video games for eight hours, it's the last thing I want to do. <laughs> I know the feeling. I know just like now. So, you love horror, you love games. At what point do you think, hang on a second, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to work in forensics, um, but I could make games or I could um, make stories, uh, write stories, make stories, you know, make games for a living. Um, and when do you realize this? And then what do you do about it? Oh, uh, I actually got into it very accidentally. Um the first thing I ever worked on was She Remembered Caterpillars. And I'd only started like, getting a few short stories published at the time. And a friend actually reached out going, like, I like the way you write. Like, will you help out with the narrative? And so I stumbled into it knowing absolutely nothing about what I was doing. Kind of learned on the fly. And I remember after that first project, I was like, holy crap. This is a thing I could do. Maybe. Let's see where this goes. And it was kind of the same with writing books as well. My first book was Rupert Wong's Cannibal Chef. And it came about when I saw Abaddon Books put out this like call for like submissions. And I was like, okay, there's a set deadline. There's this and that. And because I've been doing so much journalism at a point, I was like, this works in how my brain with how my brain is structured right now because the concept of just writing a book and just sending it out not knowing what was going to happen like I've been a journalist too long to like commit my words to that kind of limbo, so I was like, cool, let's see what happens. And I threw everything in the kitchen sink into the submission and submitted <laughs> it, and the editor loved it, and it kind of kicked off a lot of things. So that was that was the starting starting point really, and then. It's your journey through games well uh, your journey through games is you've worked on a, a bunch of different games are there any kind of significant memories within that journey any games or projects that that stick out particularly as being i don't know foundational or significant in in what happened next working on sunless skies and fallen london definitely um, because the people at Feel Better Games, um, their understanding of craft, their understanding of prose, how to create something, 
beautiful without it being overwhelming or masterclass. To this day, I keep trying to beg them to like release a book on how to write because <laughs> the lessons that they taught me there have followed me across my life. Can you share any of those lessons? I think some of that is proprietary, so no. Okay. I'm not sure, but I, I rather, you know, be safe no, than sorry. That's fine. So fail better really propelled you forward and and is there a, a a book project in particular that's had a similar effect on your writing i mean as i understand it nothing but black and teeth has been the most successful yes shockingly which is i don't know is that obviously that's a good thing because you, you're always i expect want exposure you know you want you want to sell more you want more people to read your work but at the same time something that I'm beginning to see more and more is that not with my own stuff, but I'm understanding the concept more is that as people become better known or more successful, their a pressure kind of comes with mm -hmm. that as well, whether it's self-imposed or internal or external. Have you felt that? Um, yes and no. I was raised in a really traditional Asian family. So I am constantly feeling pressure no matter what. And it's just at a point where I'm like, yeah, that's just, that's just how it is. Uh, my mom was a classic mom who would be like, what? You got 85? Why not 90? And if you get 90, it's like, why not 95? And like, I'm so used to that little voice in the back of my head at this point. It's just like, yeah, okay, whatever. Just on a larger scale. <laughs> so I have a list here of the games you've, you've worked on. I'm just going to read them out just so people can hear it. Um, but let me know if I get anything wrong. So, um, Naraka, Blade Point, or Naraka, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Uh, Falcon Age, which was wonderful. Mm -hmm. Wasteland 3, in some capacity. She remembered Caterpillars, which you've already mentioned. Fallen London and Sun Sunless Skies, which you've already mentioned. Hyperscape, which you've already mentioned. And Where the Water Tastes Like Wine, which um, is interesting. I think about this game. I played it for a, a little while, a few hours, I think. But it's this interesting game where you go around collecting stories. I think that's mm -hmm. the, the right one. Yep. And it's it, that's the kind of mechanic, which is an interesting one to me. Are there any other games I've missed out there? Uh, Rainbow Six Gotham Siege. Knights, obviously. Rainbow Six Siege. And there's a bunch of stuff I still can't talk about. So. Yeah. No, that's fine. I just wanted to. And, and you've also written um, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. Um, and I think uh, you... Um, for that and, and then you also contributed to I think it was Call of the Netherdeep the critical role uh, Dungeons and Dragons book as well there was that is Dungeons and Dragons or, or role-playing games are they something that featured in your life growing up as well you did although it was mostly World of Darkness um, I've also written um, for some of the role books okay I see uh, so yeah I meant to ask earlier was with these ideas with these horror ideas which can get quite i mean you mentioned breakable things earlier which was you know a more personal tale but when you go down the idea of a mermaid you know who's been caught by humans and impregnated and things like that or, or when your stories get even more gruesome maybe nothing but blackened teeth what's it like living with those ideas in your head does it affect you in any way um honestly 
not really in many ways writing horror is kind of an act of exorcism they're taking out out a lot of subconscious feelings subconscious ponderings and nailing them on the page and freeing myself from them so okay it's oddly cathartic to write horror that feels like a recommendation to me i will try it <laughs> would you say your style or your tastes have changed at all over the years um, I'm always interested in experimenting with new forms, new ways of telling stories. So subtly, I think they have, but I have this overwhelming love for the English language. I think this is often true for a lot of people who don't speak English natively. I'm like, English is my oh. third language, honestly. And... No, I, that part has always stayed true. I am fascinated with words. I am fascinated with how the English language pilfers other languages for descriptors, for terminology, things like that, and how that applies to the world. I like my big words. I like my weird, obscure words because... <laughs> They help define the world. Uh, there is a book that I love a lot that I reread very often. It is Landmarks by Robert McFarlane. And throughout the book, what he does, he goes to different um, places like the mountains, to the ocean side, things like that. And he sifts through words that have become forgotten by people. He explores why those words existed in the first place, why they were important to the people there. And early on in his introduction, he talks about how when we lose words, when they are carved out of our dictionary, when we forget there are a million ways to describe a mountain range, we become disenchanted with the land. Mm. And we forget this value. We forget exploring its nuances because it just flattens. It becomes two-dimensional. And a way to re-enchant ourselves, re-enchant the wilderness and the world, is to look at those words and why it mattered to people. So. Fascinating. Do you think the way you try to scare people and perhaps the way you yourself are scared, um, I don't know how you kind of gauge how frightening, if you like, a story is, but do you think that kind of sense of horror do you think that's changed over the years no not actually um is there a moment we, that you think back to when you think of being scared is there a moment that you think back to almost like your gauge where you have this moment at the far end of it going that's really scared and and then zero being you know i'm not scared at all is there a moment that is sort of your litmus test your for being scared yes um and the following answer is probably going to be faintly depressing it's that feeling that i think every afap person gets when they realize they're being followed down the street that ah. somebody is paying attention to them that should not be paying attention to them and it's dark and it's late and for that moment for an indefinite period of time you are safe you are fine 
But that window of being okay is slowly closing and you can't turn around, you cannot look back, you cannot run, you cannot flinch because if you do, a million bad things are about to happen. Um, that embodies my sense of, oh God, this is terrifying. That's what I try to put into a lot of my works. Interesting. I imagine there are many more stories to come from you. There are more stories um, next year, of course. I think I wrote this down. So The Salt Grows Heavy is in May 2023. The Dead Take, The A-Train, which is the collaborative book I think you're writing on, that's in March 2023. I think then, of course, Breakable Things in, in November. But do you have any aspirations in in bookland or in writing land for things that you would like to write? Anything that sort of on that list of stories to write yes and i'm in the process of making those happen but again <laughs> i have an MBA, so i cannot say anything just yet so also you know someone as someone who's broken into the world of writing and who's um, had success there as well what would your advice be to people who who are coming to it now for instance to, to someone like me um, on a creative writing course, you know, not even someone looking necessarily to get published. What would be your advice to me to improve my writing? I suppose, improve my stories. I know you haven't seen any, but you know, what would you say? What's your golden nuggets of wisdom? Uh, read voraciously, read everything, read things that you don't expect to be reading, uh, read nonfiction, read genres that are outside your usual preference just devour books read enough of them and you start almost absorbing the concept what works and what what doesn't work by osmosis okay and finish everything you write i think that's the most difficult thing um if you can't finish a story you cannot improve it you cannot look at it as a complete entity and decide what you want to cut out what you want to edit what needs improving it is perhaps the most daunting thing for everyone. It's still something that um, I bump up against because you get to that soggy middle and you're like, oh, <laughs> this is not it. I'm just going to try something else. I'm going to do something else that is better. But the truth is, unless you're willing to confront that obstacle and you're willing to push past it, you're always going to run into that problem again and again and again. Now, you're still going to hate it when you get to the middle, but if you complete enough things, um, you realize that hate is only temporary. Whatever you think isn't perfect about your work, whatever you think is terrible about it, can be improved, can be changed, can be fixed. But those realizations do not get internalized until you finish what you started. Mm. Strong bits of wisdom. And how about in video game land? Uh, do you have any unfulfilled dreams there, if you like? Are there any dream projects you'd like to work on? Yes, and I am in the process of making that happen. But again, NDAs, because just that's all my life is these days. But that's exciting to hear because that's great. If, you know, it's a, I, I'm trying to imagine, that based on what you've told me, what this game could possibly be. Um, but I won't say, just in case I get it right. <laughs> so thank you very much for your time. We're kind of coming to the end um, of our time now. Um, but there are a few questions that I ask everyone. Uh, so I'm going to ask you as well. So the first of these is first game. 
what was the first game you played? And it can be the literal first game you played, or it can be the first significant kind of gaming memory that you had. The King's Quest Adventure games. Those are my most salient memories. Do you know, I recently spoke to Roberta Williams for (gasps) this podcast, and she was lovely. That's always good to know. So the King's Quest series. Yes. Fantastic. And the next question is the last game. What was the last game you played? Probably Gotham Knights, but what was the last game you played for for fun? Uh, The most recent Monkey Island. Okay. Did you enjoy it? Yes, very much so. Um, The art style took a moment to get used to, but I also... The opening was just perfect. The way they ended the very la- the game before this, I was like, I don't know how you're going to come back from that particular end, what you're going to do about it, how are you going to make it coherent, and then they did what they did. I'm like, oh, that is perfect. Awesome. And then the last question, probably the trickiest one, is best game. Uh, so probably mm-hmm. what is your favorite game? And it can be one of your favorites. I know this is an impossible question. Probably Final Fantasy Seven. Okay. Uh, but for like a completely trivial reason, I think it was my first 3D game ever. And just seeing how that world worked, just being able to just run anywhere and do anything, it just blew my tiny little mind. <laughs> Have you played the remaster or the remake? No, because I work in game development now, and I. Mostly just work on games. I don't play enough anymore. <laughs> That's fair enough. Um, Cassandra, you've been wonderful and very um, illuminating. Um, thank you very much for spending time with us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, to everyone listening, thanks for listening. This was One to One and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Bye for now. <laughs>